0: create these spaces that are trying to solve one type of problem rather than recognizing that in order to be agile and be ready for the things that are coming down the road, we need to have a lot of cross-institutional pollination to recognize that the the centers and the spaces that are doing a particular kind of work need to work together, not in the um, emergency mode, but in the mode that allows them to build knowledge, to build understanding, to build practice and process. So when things do go wrong or things are become challenges or there is a change in higher ed we can be responsive to that without saying you know we're we're all caught in our own little spaces and wondering you know what we're going to do at this particular moment in time
1: hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of an ingenious youth the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers Today's guests hardly need an introduction. Eddie Maloney and Joshua Kim have been dubbed higher ed's most iconic duo. They are academics, co-authors of two books and many articles, and in their Inside Higher Ed blog about technology and education, they routinely have interesting and provocative things to say. Josh is the Director of Online Programs and Strategy at Dartmouth College as well as serving as a Senior Fellow for Academic Transformation Learning and Design with the Center for Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown University. Eddie is a professor of English at Georgetown University, where he is the executive director of the Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship, a professor of practice of narrative literature and theory in the Department of English, and the founding director of the master's degree program in learning design and technology. We'll include full links uh, to their bios in the show notes, but I have been very much looking forward to our conversation. Josh. And Eddie, welcome to the Ingenious U community.
0: Thank you, Melissa. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. Thanks for the lovely introduction. It's wonderful to be
1: here. Now, the two of you have become known for your writing and your speaking about learning innovation. I don't know how you feel about being dubbed uh, as (laughs) higher ed's most iconic duo, uh, but I think Uh, That comes as a result of the fact that you have become very well known for your writing um, and your speaking and your thought leadership. You've collaborated on two often cited books, Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education and the Low Density University, 15 Scenarios for Higher Education, as well as a host of other projects, as I mentioned. Josh, you have a doctorate in Sociology and Demography from Brown. And you're now at Dartmouth, whereas Eddie, you have a PhD from the Ohio State University in English Lit, and you are at Georgetown. So how did the two of you start working together, and how did you wind up in this learning innovation space?
0: Josh and I had intersected in a couple of different ways over the years, but we really started to work together around 2013, 2012, 2013, when we were all thinking about um, the kind of MOOC craze that was hitting higher education and what it meant um, for the future of higher ed and this particular platform that was changing how we were thinking about online. Josh and I started working together um, and connecting around some of those questions as part of an edX partnership at the time that we were uh, both institutions were involved in. And that I think extended pretty quickly to I think just recognizing that we had shared interests. There were things that we were we're working on at both uh, Dartmouth and at Georgetown that were similar, some challenges both um, with thinking about our institutional context, but also thinking about where higher ed was going that um, I think really led to some initial engagements. Uh, We ran a symposia together and then we started writing together. And um, uh, from there, you know, both books uh, came pretty quickly in fact, and in fact, they were published I came out in the same year, so we've been we've been working together uh, ever since, and we have two more books that are that are coming out very soon as well.
2: I, I would say you know Eddie is is um, often way too modest, and and I'm always um, trying to get Eddie to be less modest. But the reality is that under Eddie's leadership, Georgetown has really become the center for a larger ecosystem wide conversation about where teaching and learning and learning, learning innovation is, is going. So I, I had known of Eddie's and Georgetown's work for a long time. And the chance to, to work with Eddie at Georgetown is a great honor. And you know, Eddie has also done an amazing job of bringing together other scholars um, at Georgetown and at Candles who are researching and now teaching through the, the master's program that, that um, Eddie and his colleagues have, have developed. Um, these issues. So, you know, I I think that institutional part and the work that that Georgetown has done is an important part of the story.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. And full disclosure, my daughter was a student of Eddie's. And so I have some firsthand exposure to just um, how significant the work is that's being done there and how impactful Eddie and his colleagues are uh, in bringing up the next generation of learning designers and professionals who are working in this space. So um, I'm I'm right with you on that, Josh. So let me, let me go back and ask you about your first 2020 book. And I, the first one is Learning Innovation, right? And in the Future of Higher Ed, that was the first one that came out. And it was written before the pandemic, I assume. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So
1: Okay, so in the book, you provide a really valuable context for understanding the evolution of teaching and learning going back um, at least a couple of decades, and you use the term a turn to learning, which I think is a really interesting term for describing what you observed. Can you walk us through some of the most important shifts uh, that you document that constitute a turn to learning?
0: I'll start and then let uh, Josh jump in. And, and actually, I just uh, thank you for the question and, and kind of go back to what I had said in terms of where we started working together. Uh, so the first turn to learning that we really mark and is is this, uh, this moment where we saw across higher education, uh, maybe an anxiety, maybe a fear, um, a concern, but also potentially an opportunity for many to think about what was going to happen um, with higher ed now that we had technologies that enabled large scale um, engagement with students. And we can talk about whether or not that's actually learning. We could talk about whether or not that's actually a useful platform or approach to teaching and learning. I'm happy to have that conversation. But what we really wanted to mark in our book was that this was a moment where Uh, You saw presidents, you saw provosts, many who spends um, time thinking about the larger institutional context, which involves many, many things outside of teaching and learning, um, really shift their attention to a teaching and learning problem, maybe for the first time in a long time, and really say, you know what, actually, uh, we better pay attention to this thing that's happening around us. We've got people who are getting uh, written up in the New York Times and in magazine saying there may only be 10 uh, institutions of higher education by 2050. Um, and so that anxiety was really starting to, to, to settle. We had presidents, um, and we, at least we had one president in an institution who was fired for not uh, moving quickly enough um, in this space. That created a lot of pressure. And so we started to really see this this moment where we started to realize that um, that teaching and learning is something that we, we do in higher education. And then it's not just about research. It's not just about athletics. It's not only about providing a context for students to come and be part of this formative um, experience, um, but there really is value in thinking about this thing that happens in the classroom. And importantly, we saw at that time that there was a recognition that it couldn't just happen um, on its own, that there needed to be some understanding, some investment, some engagement in this, that this we needed to be intentional about this. And luckily, I think for higher education, we were doing a lot of that work. A lot of schools were doing that work. Schools that hadn't been paying attention to this for a long, long time um, were doing that work because of that MOOC moment when the pandemic hit. And so many were were more prepared than they would have been. The technologies were more advanced than they would have been. Faculty were, were more um, willing to engage with some of these tools um, than they might have been. A, been 10 years ago if we hadn't had that. So good, bad or otherwise, that actually, I think was one moment where we turned back to a sense of learning. And we can look at others historically where that's happened as well, but we can easily map also those moments where we've turned away from learning. And for us, I think importantly in this book, what we wanted to mark is we have a times where learning becomes an important center of what's happening in higher ed. And for those of us in the field, we think it's um, a little bit odd that we then turn away from that, or we forget that we need to to spend that time and that investment. So the ultimate goal of this book is to try to keep our eyes on that center to keep, keep our attention, keep our institutional attention, keep our cultural attention on this idea that we're here to help our students. We're here to help um, in the classroom, everything else, while important and crucial and necessary um, is, in many respects in service of this idea that we're here to teach our students.
1: You know, I realize this may be stating the obvious, but could you just go a little bit deeper in terms of why a turn to learning is so, from your vantage point, why is this so important? What What's the impact and for whom?
2: Sure, I, I can, can take a shot at, shot at this. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great kind of question. Um, you know, and to make this very concrete, Eddie and I, we graduated from college in 1991 and 1990, and we've now worked in higher education, and we we were talking about, you know, Melissa, for for your daughters and my daughters who went through college, we we both have daughters are in their mid-20s, Eddie's kids are in high school now, how much better the college experience was, the teaching was, the learning was, than when we were undergraduates. And almost all the story about higher education is quite rightly how much more expensive it's gotten. And we always talk about that and the growth in debt and all the issues of access. We always talk about all the problems, but we hardly talk about how something as fundamental as teaching and learning has very much improved in higher education. We've seen real advances. And Eddie and I, we wanted to both mark that and actually say that out loud that that colleges and universities are really investing in teaching and learning. It might be uneven, and it might be there's lots of differences, but we're seeing all these investments. And then to try to step backwards and unpack why that's happening. And for, as Eddie says, to make sure that we don't backslide, to make sure that we actually celebrate and understand what's working in making institutional investments in teaching and learning beyond what the individual professor can do in her classroom and actually how the institution can support her in her teaching. And that's what we're trying to um, figure out and make recommendations for in the book.
1: That is such, a, that is such an important point, but this is not something that, that is noted very often, that kind of a shift. So that's an important value, I think, in the writing that you're doing. Eddie, were you going to say something?
0: Yeah. I'm- I was just, uh, thank you for that. Melissa and and Josh, it's a great answer. I think we, um, maybe two other sort of things that that are part of this conversation for us. Um, One is we we know a lot more about how people learn um, than we might have known 30 years ago. We were starting to see, I think, um, changes in how people were teaching in pockets in different parts, departments, for example, at certain institutions. Uh, When I was uh, trained to be a teacher um, as a um, graduate instructor um, in a a writing program, there was a lot of attention being paid to pedagogy at that moment in time, but it was very, very isolated to that program uh, and certainly wasn't institution-wide. And then it certainly wasn't across all of our institutions in in any sort of way. And over the past 30 years, we have learned quite a bit more about what it means to learn, what students in the classroom, the value of cognitive models, apprenticeship models of, of learning, various approaches to active learning that become really important. There's so much more we know about what can be impactful for our students. And so that's one important piece of this, this is why this, this sort of attention is, is crucial, I think, from our perspective. Um, and the second is that we just know that um, the job of teaching right now is um, perhaps more difficult because of that, but be also because of technology and where our students are in relationship to technology so we ask a lot more of our faculty and in some ways what we ask of our faculty requires more um, institutional support than ever Um, it requires more engagement with uh, the classroom technologies it requires more development of of materials in a digital format because we're no longer just handing out textbooks or books for students to read Um, all of that active learning all of that engagement with some of the things we know from learning science and um, from the scholarship teaching and learning, helping us see that there are better ways of engaging with students. I mean there's more work required from a faculty perspective to do that, which inevitably means that there are more hands involved in the teaching and learning experience. It means that there are more people other than just the faculty member um, working with a number of students. and when you recognize that, you realize that the institutional engagement with that, the institutional investment in that needs to be um, on par with what you're asking of your faculty, needs to be on par with what you hope to bring to your students. Um, and that's a challenge, right? So we know more about learning science, and we know that the, the job is a little bit more complicated and more challenging and requires more more help and support. And both of those things, I think, are, are part of that, that reason for that term.
1: Well, and that is a great segue to my next question, um, because I know that you have written, uh, I believe it was in your first book, that we actually know quite a bit about how learning works uh, and the application of that learning and learning science to the practice of teaching, but that there's less known about learning innovation. Um, can, Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that and in particular, For those that aren't familiar with the term, what do you mean when you use the words learning innovation?
2: We think about learning innovation as those intentional practices that are done at the institutional or organizational level to advance student learning. So we're we're really trying to to bring this out of what individual professors do, you know, the the craft of teaching, um, which is completely necessary, and then Look at all the the structures and the supports that those professors can access, tap into, integrate into, to help advance their their students' learning. Um, we argue in, in that in that first book that we we see how institutions are approaching advancing individual student learning as an area that should be researched. That it, it's it's very much um, under theorized. And under research, we don't have enough comparative data about what what colleges and universities are doing what's working and what's not. And we really see this as as a discipline that can bring in elements of of organizational change. You know, there's lots of writing about how how universities and and organizations change, but but not so much trying to apply that to the to the issue of student learning Um, any you want to add on to that definition.
0: Uh, I think it's a great definition, Josh. Thanks um, for, for laying that out. I mean, you know, related to that and what I was saying earlier about what we know about learning, right? There's, there's an odd sort of tension there that we know a lot um, about uh, what can be effective practices in the classroom. We don't yet know um, everything we need to know or what we can know about the practices at an institutional level that we need to engage in. We don't really fully um, understand what will be most effective and helpful. So a lot of what we're doing is innovating in practice, um, what I call here applied innovation. Um, so I see the work that I do in, in that kind of space where it's, it's aspirational. Uh, and so the learning innovation that we're talking about in the book is very much about how to mark those, those relationships between what's happening in the classroom and what's happening at the institutional level.
1: In your second book, which I think was written in the middle of the pandemic. It was written after the pandemic right, had, had taken off. Um, you present 15 possible scenarios for how a college or university might plan for institutional and instructional resiliency. Um, obviously the book was inspired uh, by the pandemic but it really strikes me that the framework that you present uh, serves an even more valuable purpose now in going forward as uh, presidents and deans and provosts and faculty are trying to figure out what the new normal looks like if there is such a thing. Um, So for listeners who haven't read your book, can you provide a high level overview of the framework that you present with these 15 scenarios?
0: You're absolutely right. So this was written, um, in fact, just as institutions were going fully remote. Um, so, we were writing, we wrote a series of, uh, we wrote on one major um, blog post where we actually outlined all 15 scenarios, and then we, we cataloged all of those um, over the next two weeks uh, plus, where we were really trying to help uh, folks who were at institutions thinking about how do we not only think about this moment in time right now when we're going into an emergency remote mode, but what will the fall look like when we don't actually know what's going to happen um, from the pandemic at the time. So there was, a, it was a, if you remember back, it was a, a lot of um, uh, anxiety about where we would be, what would happen in the fall, would we be back on campus, would the pandemic keep us completely? There was some assumption, I think that um, we would have some choice in that, but that that choice would be, I think, affected by um, different rates of infection and so on, things that we, we still were not clear about. So the range of scenarios um, were, things that required some presence on campus to being fully remote, but they were more in the hybrid kind of space where we would imagine that we would be on campus, but we need to be able to adjust quickly. We need to be able to think differently about the the time where students would be present on campus because they might get sick or faculty might get sick. And so we mapped out a set of um, moments from being fully remote uh and fully online to being fully in person and kind of back in in a kind of normal um in normal space and everything in between. We just tried to give examples of possibilities that people could think about. We were thinking both in terms of what would happen in the classroom, so different ways in which faculty could engage with students, to what might be some structural changes. So different ways of thinking about um, how the semester was, in fact, um, laid out, so you might start early and end early, you might start late and end late, you might move to a module, modular approach to the, to the curriculum so you could actually have more intense periods and then give students breaks. Um, it really was not, um, at the time, uh, clear what would happen in the winter, which we all thought was going to be the, the next sort of big wave turns out for most of us it, it happened in the fall and we all had to go fully remote but um, this was this was really very much about trying to get us set up for possibilities for that fall
2: we wrote this while we were trying to figure all this out at our institutions and to advise you know leadership about where to go and our colleagues at the as well as a, as across the ecosystem so we were trying to develop frameworks and language so everyone was working with a, you know, a, a consistent set of language at least when they talked about what are the possibilities. I do want to say that one of the things we, we highlight in the book with each of the scenarios is that as the pandemic was going on, we, we were very much seeing that the the pandemic had unequal effects on different types of learners. that that the, the least privileged of our learners, we're, we're having the the biggest difficulties navigating the pandemic. You know, it was clear that our colleges were doing a great job of, of keeping going, of having academic continuity, but that many of our learners, those with you know not good access to good bandwidth or quiet places to to study, you know, crowded living environments, um, parents who are ill, you know, poor economic circumstances we're actually having a a really horrible time and the pandemic was hitting our student population unequally. So in the scenarios, we try to really focus on issues of of equity and that as as institutions try to go forward with strategies to deal with this public health emergency, how can we actually set things up that, that work for the least advantaged of our learners?
3: These are difficult days for higher education, even before the pandemic higher education was in a free fall colleges are closing and merging at an ever increasing rate leaders are facing challenges from every direction, no wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELAS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed program in response the edd program prepares students to become self-aware effective adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success all coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty and through the dissertation and practice our students learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. I'm
1: sure your thinking has changed at least a little bit since you first put pen to paper and came up with these 15 uh, scenarios. So based on what you're now seeing and your sense about where we are, where most colleges and universities are, would you change the framework, the continuum in any way?
0: When we, we put down these scenarios and we drafted out what we saw as the set of possibilities, we didn't see these as rigid, um, Dogmatic uh, scenarios or structures, but rather really uh, speculative ideas about how one might think about uh, changes to the to the semester, changes to engagement with students. Um, and as Josh was saying, we were seeing equity issues. We were seeing also a, a disconnect from our students. Our students were shutting down. There was a lot of despair, um, a lot of anxiety about what was happening in the world. It wasn't just COVID. We had a political situation. Everything was sort of piling on onto uh, our sense of students, and so. Um, what I like about what we put together and feel proud about is that we were creating a kind of um, loose framework that could be mixed and matched that could be, you you could take ideas from any one of them and say, okay, you know what? I don't really like scenario two, but what I do like is a piece of this scenario two and some of three and some of five. And that at least gives me an idea how to think about it within the context that we are are writing about. So I don't know that I would change anything. Uh, We tried to make that, that sort of sense of mix and match as clear as possible, but that might be one thing where we might be a little bit more um, sort of uh, clear about what, what it means to pull from different pieces, especially as we think about what kind of influence this might have going forward.
1: Well, and the, the benefit in terms of optionality uh, and flexibility that your framework helps to uh, inspire, you know, in thinking about uh, possibilities is really, it, it's I think a, a really valuable Uh, aspect of the tool. Josh, uh, anything that you would add to the framework now or change? I I
2: think I'm most thinking about how do we retain what we learned during the height of the pandemic when we had to go remote and incorporate those learnings into what we're doing going forward. You know, it, it was an absolutely horrible time. And there's there's not as horrible time for our students, for our faculty and our staff. it was it was you would not wish this on anyone. It was also true that for a span of time, all of our institute, the only thing that our institutions were focusing on was having our students be able to to go through their courses and their programs and progress, you know, towards their their degrees. Normally at universities, we're focused on a million and one things, you know, and and at universities like like Eddie and, and my um, institutions, you know, we have a a teaching and a, and a research mission, a knowledge production and, and a teaching mission. And and we do a million other things as well. But for for a time, we we're all just really focused on how can we support our students through this really difficult time, how do we support our our faculty and all the people working together? So you know, I going forward, I I think that maybe, you know, in your question, what would I do differently? I'm thinking, I'm wondering if we should be really pushing these ideas more that, that we have to retain that kind of focus and maybe give some other things up
1: yeah that's a really good good point you're you're really talking about the most significant takeaways what we learned right from covid the experience in covid so what other what other takeaways um, and i think you talk about this in your book as the legacy the teaching and learning legacy from covid so um, being focused laser like focus on student success helping students be successful and achieve but what other what other significant things would you want to make sure get pulled forward?
0: I think the answer that Josh gave earlier about what we were learning about our students um, we saw it into our students' lives in ways that we had never done before and our students saw it into our lives um, in ways that they hadn't before and I think that created a sense of community um, mm-hmm. that was you know crucial and important. And I don't want to lose sight even in saying that that it wasn't um, that that shared, sense of community then made everything better. In fact, it it didn't. I I think it helped to um, ameliorate some of the challenges that we were facing, but it certainly didn't, I think, solve the the challenge. And we know that we still have um, uh, inequities in higher education that put our students at a disadvantage for doing their best work. Um, And so I think one of the things that, you know, I would hope we would see is that an investment in trying to understand how we bring our students into um, our community and help them feel that they belong in a way that allows them, encourages them, gives them the context and the platform to do their best work is maybe one of the most important things we can do. In higher education, sometimes that's making sure that their bandwidth works, but often that is about helping our students in their differences feel included um, in the environment that we're in. We saw during the pandemic that An an institutional context could be a a particular kind of leveler. It gave everybody a certain access to resources and bandwidth and all of the technologies and so on. But we also know it it creates uh, difference as well, and it creates disparities as well. And so trying to address those, I think, are important. On the flip side, I would say one of the things that that we spent a lot of time (coughs) on at my institution, and I think I was certainly thinking about as we were writing this, trying to be um, as flexible and as compassionate to our students as possible at a really, really difficult moment in time. And I think one of the places where we did not communicate well enough um, that flexibility and compassion um, do not always mean uh, not being rigorous. Do not always mean not asking a lot of our students, not giving them structure. You can give structure and then be flexible with structure or you can be completely flexible and then that puts a lot of the pressure back on our students. Um, so one of the things I think we, we need to learn is how we approach that initial moment and in the pandemic with certain expectations um, about what we need, our students needed at the time. And we've learned things. We learned that some things worked and some things were that needed be refined and one of those in my mind is that relationship between flexibility and compassion and um, rigor and expectation of our students giving students um, especially students who may be the most vulnerable a structure can be one of the best things we can do for them and then be flexible Um, One of the pieces in in this that we talk a lot about is this idea of transparency and really being sharing what we're doing and why we're doing it that can be really valuable at at this time as well. So a lot of the scenarios that we put together were as much about trying to be transparent with our students, including our students, bringing our students in helping our students be partners in the process. Um, And that that dynamic I think we lose really, really fast when we when we go back to where we we are now, which is trying to be back on campus in most of our, you know, the institutions that we teach in and, and we have colleagues in mostly residential institutions where we're expecting our students to be in place. Um, we, you know, we lose that, that sense of what it means to really kind of fully embrace some of the lessons of, of the past two years. And that's, I think, really disappointing. And I would just go back to the first book as well, that, that in, institutional investment, it's easy to pull back on that and think, okay, we made it, we're through and we're done. Um, but there's so much more that needs to be done and that this is a kind of practicing process that we always need to keep our eyes on.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And I hope that your uh, future writing will keep these things front and center. Um, as I said, your, your scenarios are, I think, more needed now than ever before. Um, so let me ask you, I, do you have a favorite? scenario uh, of the 15. And uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, which ones you think are most likely to stick as we are moving, moving forward?
2: So I'll be a little provocative. Um, right now, so I'm the director of online programs and strategy at Dartmouth. So I think about online all the time. But my favorite scenario is everyone comes back to campus, and we're only residential, and we get rid of all the technology. Now that's never gonna happen, right? It's, it's not like like the world now is a blended and a hybrid world and um, we're working hybrid and our students have a lot more flexibility. But the whole thing that the pandemic taught me is how much I miss just sitting around a table and having no technology at all. It's such a privileged place, it's not the world we live in, but I, I'd say if I could sort of wave my magic wand, we'd just all be around a, around a, a nice wooden seminar table.
0: I think Josh has uh, waved his magic wand. I think most people want us to be back in that uh, place. And that's kind of where everyone is going. I've been, since the sort of mid part of the pandemic, I've been thinking that one of the things that we're gonna be doing is we're gonna, the pendulum is gonna swing back really, really hard against remote learning. And everyone's gonna to wanna to be on campus. And And I do see it as a pendulum. I think it's gonna to have to swing and, and level at some point and find some balance. but. Uh, right now, we're pretty hard in that space of, um, of being back on campus, at least for institutions that are traditionally residential and, and have in-person instruction. I think for me, one of the, so that I'll, I'll name a scenario and then the reason why, the modified tutorial um, is one that I, I always um, kind of come back to because for me, it's the one that um, is really the most invested in the engagement between the faculty member and the students. It's the one that tends to allow for the most transparency uh, between the faculty member and the students, it's the one that gives the most care to and um, builds on the, what we know is most important um, in almost every experience in higher ed, And that's these mentoring relationships where students can see themselves in a faculty member um, as someone who is uh, carrying out a career or a set of principles and thought that they would ultimately like to do themselves. And I think that the tutorial model at some level allows for at least some engagements with that mentoring practice and process. Um, but to me, really, the issue is not about what the, the scenario is is as much as how do we, how do we build the practices of st- helping a faculty member make and bring students in to be partners in the learning experience, helping them uh, faculty understand the value of being transparent in what they're trying to do. So often when we're teaching, we're simply going in and trying to impart information or practice um, but really understanding the why of both of those things, why we make the choices we make, why we're doing what we're doing um, in a syllabus, in the, in the way that we're teaching a particular um, you know, topic or set of issues. Those moments can be the ones that actually give the foundation for the thinking um, that we're asking our students to do, and we don't tend to do that enough, I think.
1: So from from your vantage point, what does the future of higher education look like? So we just have a few minutes left here. So I want to ask you to look into your, your crystal ball and uh, tell me what you see looking ahead and what you think the implications are for teaching and learning.
2: So I'll go first here to give Eddie a little chance to, to say his, <laughs> his, his wisdom to this. And by the way, when Eddie, like Eddie and I, talk about this and we always argue like that's what's so great about our partnership is (laughs) we're always arguing this out and and we seldom agree but that is very helpful in in a in a partnership I mean I I think it's clear that we're never going back to having this strong divide between an in person and a digitally mediated course or class or field of study that everything now is integrated flexible hybrid just the way we work now you know, we spend some time going to the office, some time working uh, you know, at our houses, sometimes a lot more of us are working fully remotely. It's just all mixed up. It's not the, the most important dividing line now of where we're doing that work. I think higher education is definitely going towards that, how people who work at colleges and universities work and how teaching and learning works. So we're, we're never going back to just, it's just about the campus
0: my sense of of where we need to go and what we need to be doing is preparing for the unknown. Um, And that's a hard thing to do. You you obviously don't want to just set up a a set of institutional structures that are waiting for something that won't come, Um, but to recognize that there are things that we can do to prepare us for challenges that we are going to face, to be agile, to be ready to pivot and move as we can. And that's a hard thing for our institutional structure right now or the way in which we we tend to be set up. Um, Organizationally, we tend to have, um, on the administrative level, I think maybe the the same kind of problem that we have on the academic level, and that is we are uh, siloed in disciplines on the academic space for the most part. There are interdisciplinary programs, but often we're in schools or in disciplines within those schools. And on the administrative side, we do the same thing. We create these spaces that are trying to solve one type of problem, rather than recognizing that in order to be agile and be ready for the things that are coming down the road. We need to have a lot of cross institutional pollination to recognize that the the centers and the spaces that are doing a particular kind of work need to work together, not in the um, emergency mode, but in the mode that allows them to build knowledge to build understanding to build practice and process. So when things do go wrong or things are become challenges or there is a change in higher ed, we can be responsive to that without saying, you know, we're we're all caught in our own little spaces and wondering, you know, what we're gonna do at this particular moment in time. That's that's a hard thing to do. It requires thinking differently about kind of an institutional structure that. Almost everywhere is is, is 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 pretty rigid in, in many respects and I, you know it's hard to see a lot of people a lot of um, senior leadership at the institutions trying to think differently about their overall institu- in, institutional structures in that way
1: well as you both know changing the structure is one of the first uh, ways that a, a president can get fired so I I know that there is a lot of reluctance particularly when you're new in the role to to start moving people around and yet you know what you're saying is a theme i have heard uh across so many conversations we've had in the last year with thought leaders from a variety of different spaces in higher ed and they're all they're all talking about this the need to move out of silos and do a lot more cross collaborative thinking and planning so um, you know, I think you're identifying something that is very, very important, and maybe it has to start somewhere other than from the top. Um, so, which you know, again, is I think why the work the two of you are doing is so valuable, because you're you're cross collaborating across institutions, which is, um, you know, that that's something else that we need to do a lot, a lot more of. So, you know, to the question of what other things presidents should be doing. Um, you know, let, let's say you are, the two of you are invited into a gathering of, oh, 300 college presidents, provost, deans from across the country. And you've been asked to advise them on what they should be thinking about, what they should be doing in terms of teaching and learning on their campuses to ensure a more robust um, and equitable experience for their students. Do you have a few? tactics or strategies that are top of mind other than what you've you've mentioned a few but I'm wondering if there's anything else you would you would advise if you had this uh ready audience in front of you
2: well first I want to say that my bags are packed I'm ready to go with that (laughs) invitation I hope it comes I'm waiting by the phone for, for that for that call um and uh, it'll be great to hear what, what Eddie says here. I, as we we have these conversations, this is the kind of work that we do to think about the research that, when writing, we do together. So, Melissa, this is a fantastic conversation. You ask great questions. Uh, thanks. Mm-hmm. I think if if I had some time with with uh, presidents, um, I, I would talk about learning science. I would say that we we really have to organize our institutions about around what we know about how people learn and use those as first principles to guide our organizational structures. So I would want to have many more learning scientists brought into leadership roles at our institutions. Yeah, this is
0: a a really great question and it's a hard one to answer. So I'm happy to to pack my bags too and join Josh in this conversation. But um, I I think that one thing that we, Just a couple of things that come to to mind that I think are important to pay attention to. One, um, at least at institutions like ours, the incentive structure for faculty to pay attention to teaching is just completely out of sync with the incentive structure to pay attention to research. Um, And so rethinking that incentive structure across the board, I think becomes really important. You know, what do we value? Why do we value it? Um, What are we asking our faculty members to do to pay attention to? And how do we think about uh, making sure that promotion and tenure and the practices that we've constructed in institutions to support our faculty are aligned with an investment in teaching and learning? So the second is really making sure that the institutional infrastructure is in place to think about teaching and learning across all aspects of, of the institution. Right now, I think we, we probably have many institutions, so many offices and senior leadership uh, positions that are driven by academics, primarily meaning research, um, we, that are driven by uh, uh, services, um, student supports, uh, you know, sports and athletics, finances. Um, we have very little at senior levels um, at provostial levels or vice president levels or places where we actually are invested in teaching and learning so we don't have that kind of institutional investment in these issues so i would say that that's the second thing there needs to be a clearer investment in in that work at the institutional level that allow that helps everybody see that this is important and that is part of that kind of um that structural shift, which I I would say is is the third thing really. So how do you start to see the investment in this work that's happening on the administrative level as parallel to the investment that we make on the academic level, because that is what is going to shore up and make sure that what we're doing in the classroom is as impactful as possible. We just, uh, I think fundamentally have still bought into this tension between administration and faculty. And it's a tension that I think um, If the 300 presidents and provosts in this room could could imagine um, helping to address and resolve, it would be fundamentally about saying that we're actually here with the same mission, the same values, the same goals, and we need to recognize that we each bring a piece of the solution um, to this conversation, to this work, and we need to work together in order to make that more effective and more valuable. And there are things that each one of us can learn. Um, from each other in that space. And that's just, I think you know a lot of places not happening in the ways that it needs to.
1: I sure hope you get that invitation soon. <laughs> this This is a great conversation, and it's one that does need to be happening at the highest levels of our institutions. So here is the final question. This is our signature question we ask all of our guests uh, in season four. What innovations, new ideas have captured your thinking these days? Is there something that has just caught your imagination?
2: This is one of the areas that Eddie and I debate all the time. So what's caught my attention is the idea of trying to bring a quality relational-based education to scale. That can you actually have the kind of education that that Eddie and I love the most, that we, we, we love to students we love to teach where you actually build a relationship with your learners you know much in the way melissa your daughter built a relationship with, with the faculty at georgia on a personal relationship that's the most wonderful thing but it's it's very expensive right it's 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 a small ratio of of learners to faculty and these faculty are just amazing it's it's not a very scalable type of model are there ways that we can find to use what we know about learning science, what we know about technology, what we know about maybe artificial intelligence, all those kind of things to integrate those to try to scale that intimate relational um, way of learning. I'm kind of maybe optimistic about trying to run at this. I'm also more optimistic than Eddie is that Working with companies to try to do this, and and Eddie is definitely more skeptical, or I'm more curious about that. But I would that that's the the big uh, challenge that that it's kind of like I think of it like self driving cars. Is that that's yeah. where I'm thinking about it, um, Eddie?
0: Um, that, that's great, Josh. Uh, I, so I certainly don't quibble with the goal. I don't know how we get there, but I, 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 love, the, I love the idea. I think one of the things that uh, it's not really an innovation. I'm not sure I have an innovation that I look at and say, this has really captured my thinking um, in the maybe more traditional sense of an innovation. But what I, I, w- I have become fascinated by um, over the past 10 years um, is the way in which at an, uh, an institutional level, we collaborate with other institutions. And we have long done that at a, at a disciplinary level. It's one of the wonderful things about ed. I think it's that actually what gives us our resiliency as an industry. Um, we don't compete in the way that most industries compete. We collaborate on, on maybe the most important things, even as we compete for things like students and rankings and all of all of the least important things in terms of um, our engagement. Um, we all wanna teach our students. We want our students to be the best they can be. Um, that competition is probably the least important thing that we do. But we collaborate on knowledge creation. We collaborate on research. We collaborate on the things that are have been kind of cornerstone, one of the cornerstones of IRED. Um And we, we have done that less on the teaching and learning side and we're doing it a little bit more. Uh, and we're starting to see things in communication um, happening that allows us to, to see some value in doing those kinds of things. I don't think it's enough. I don't think we were quite there yet. Um, I think the MOOCs, again, the innovation in my mind wasn't, are we teaching at scale? Um, the innovation was, people are all, all of a sudden talking about something that is about teaching and learning across institutions, sharing ideas. It involves many other innovations, big data, technology, um, and it certainly involves the kind of cost models that Josh is interested in, I think, when we start to talk about scale, but we're not quite there yet. And we haven't, I think, fully kind of played out that innovation.
1: Okay, well, thank you for those thoughtful and provocative uh, responses. So. Before we end, uh, is there anything you want folks to know about what you're working on, or what we can be on the lookout for? I think you said at the outset that you have some new, some new writing that may be we coming. We do,
0: yeah. Thank you for that question, and thank you for this conversation. It's been it's been really wonderful. It's been a, it's been a few months since we've had a conversation like this together, so I really appreciate the opportunity to do so. I um, always love uh, connecting with Josh and, and being able to, to share ideas in this kind of space. Uh, so we have two books um, that are in, in process right now. We have a, a collection of, of essays that we're working on with a colleague of ours, uh, Maggie Tbilius. Um, And that book is about, it's called recentering uh, learning and it's, it's fundamentally about some of the things and lessons that we both learned during the pandemic, but um, we're really about what it means for higher ed. To kind of really continue to to put at the center, the notion of teaching and learning and then Josh and I are working on a book um, as well and that book is uh, titled how universities learn and it's really trying to track. um, And understand what it means for the kind of institutional change that we're talking about to happen how it's happened in the past and what it might mean for us to understand the change that could happen in the future as well.
1: Oh that sounds wonderful. So those those are both going to be va- very valuable uh, additions to the to the literature and to the thinking that you are both in the middle of inspiring. So thank you so very much for this conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I know that our our listeners will 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 as well and they will take a lot away in terms of the insights that you have shared.
2: Th- thank you Melissa. Wonderful conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you Melissa.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris Olson your host. We are very excited about our Season 4 conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free leading edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.